Hey, Lily, I hear you're going to run a workshop tomorrow. I wonder if you can help me with a problem that I have. Uh, Randy, I'm not going to get the whole team to work on your problem, especially not after what happened last time. I have no idea where you get these ideas from. I just wanted some advice on how to run an impact mapping session. I mean, I always get bogged down in trying to get everyone to understand the difference between an outcome and an output and and, and an impact. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's a different story. I can most definitely help you with that. But even better, let's ask our old pal, Tim Herbig, to do it. He's been training product people and teams in this as part of his work in building better discovery practices. Ooh, that sounds perfect. So let's see if I've got this right. Us booking Tim is the output, and the impact is that we all get to learn something. Is is that correct? Uh, let's find out. The Product Experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week, we talk to the best product people from around the globe about how we can improve our practice and build products that people love. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and to discover an extensive library of great content and videos. Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium articles, unseen videos, AMAs, roundtables, discounts to our conferences around the world, training opportunities, and more. Mind the Product also offers free Product Tank meetups in more than 200 cities, and there's probably one near you. Tim, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast again. Thanks for having me. For anyone who hasn't listened to your first episode, and you know, to be fair, was one of our very first episodes, can you just give us a quick intro? Who are you? How did you get into product? Sure. So uh, let's start with the more difficult one. So how did I get into product? Like most of us, I sort of stumbled into it. Like the company I was working for back in the days, looked for a guinea pig to try out this product owner role. And was like, hey, the working student might be a good fit for that, which tells you a lot about how serious they were about that approach. And naturally, that's how it turned out. Um, but that's how I found my way into product. And, you know, over a couple of different industries like publishing, professional networking, B2B, A-B testing software for enterprises. I found my way through the roles of product manager, heads of product. Um, also worked in a couple of smaller startups. Amongst others, I once tried to disrupt the dog-sitting industry with a super fancy mobile application, but as I'm still here, it tells you that it didn't work out. <laughs> I like to think that it was because I'm more of a cat person and not that completely <laughs> much of the product, but... That's maybe a story for another podcast. So uh, that's what I did over the last 11 years now. And since uh, almost two years, I work independent as a product management coach and consultant, where I have the privilege with working with many great product teams pretty much across the globe and helping them to solve their customers' problems and contribute to their business goals. And that's what I do for most of the day. And also love sharing my knowledge while being a guest on shows like this, uh, but also through writing on my homepage, herbic.co, uh, or through my weekly newsletter called Product Thoughts, which I share with folks. And we will link to all of that in the show notes if you missed <laughs> the link, so don't worry. Uh, one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you today is there's something that you're a bit of an expert in, that I'm really bad at, and I want to get better at it. And I've seen you talk it's about German. it before. It's not German. This, well, <laughs> maybe this, you'll tell me. Uh, but it's it's something called impact mapping, and which 
I have not been able to really use successfully, even though I've tried. And I've seen you give workshops on it, and it made so much sense. So we brought you <laughs> back on to to give us a a, a lesson. So let's start <laughs> at the beginning. What is an impact map? So what is an impact map? That's a great question. I guess it's it's many different things to many different people. Uh, to me, it is first and foremost like a, a tool for sense making for product teams, which is, I know, very vague. Um, I think the origins of impact mapping go back to 2004, as I learned. and But it has been like popularized by Goiko Acic back in 2012, I guess, where he also published a book on the topic. Personally, I got exposed to it in 2014 uh, when I was working at a very, let's say, optimistic product discovery, which required lots of connecting the dots and lots of insights and lots of navigating the problem space. And that's what it is to me these days. And it's at its core, it's a tool that helps product teams to navigate the problem space and connect individual activities and features to those larger business goals using user problems, proven user problems as like a proxy. So uh, it has evolved over time. Originally, it was a, like a four-level framework. Uh, these days, I like to use it as like a five-level way because I found that it's more helpful, more tangible for product teams I work with. But yeah, so if you would boil it down, it's a multi-level mapping technique that helps teams to connect individual activities and features to overarching business goals and strategic priorities. So do you typically tend to use this mainly in the discovery period, you, you said? So I think that, as with so many things in product, it highly depends. It's definitely my preferred use case of using it as like a, for, you could say for slightly more mature teams who have understood that it's, that the navigation of discovery is not necessarily a rigid process and just by following the blueprints, you will equal success. Um, it helps you to be like a companion to document what you have learned, to frame why you would want to embark on a discovery and to make deliberate choices about what kind of options you might be pursuing and how you validate these. But I've also seen great success for teams who might not be that fluent in product discovery, if you want to say so, who could use it as like a one-off exercise to pretty much identify, okay, what are all the things we're doing right now and all the things we're knowing and trying to connect these and realizing, oh, there's a big gap in our understanding of what kind of problems this user segment is facing. This feature doesn't connect to any user problem and we don't even know what the overarching business goal is. So it exposes these blind spots and encourages you to hopefully take more educated next steps. So in the in the first instance where um, you say the kind of uh, maybe more mature product function might use it as a an ongoing tool as part of their product discovery uh, work, are they kind of looking at the impact map after product research interviews and then taking the outcome of those interviews and mapping them as part of the impact mapping exercise? How like how does it work on a sort of ongoing basis? And are you building like one very large artifact or does it break down into smaller components? So what I would recommend teams doing is to start even like before you're doing the research, because from my perspective, the, specifically the first two levels of the impact map, which is called the impact though, and the, the actor level, these are quite helpful questions to have clarity about when it comes to even approaching and structuring your research, right? right. Because the, this first level, the impact is a lot about What's the what high level company metric mirrors success for us three to 12 months into the future? 
And this could be one of multiple metrics, right? So a company or a department, depending on your size, might be focused more on monetization, user growth, churn, tech quality, those very lagging high-level metrics. And you might hand, you might use one of these as the main framing for a product team or a given discovery effort. And so depending on what business goal is most important to you, you might want to think about, okay, who should I talk to? Like whose problems are actually relevant in the context of that impact, right? So you wouldn't just use the same segmentation over and over by just saying, oh, new user, returning user, current user, free user. But you want to look at, okay, what kind of attributes are relevant for that uh, for that impact, so to say. And then once you have talked to the people or did whatever kind of qualitative, quantitative research you, you had to do, you can then distill the insights or the spotted patterns from those efforts into the, the third level, the outcome level of the map, and thereby articulate okay, how would I have to change the behavior of a given actor so I can achieve my overarching impact or can contribute to it? So let's, let's just make sure we have that all in order so we know what we're talking about. So you said there were originally no four. Order. Well, you said there were four <laughs> levels uh, of it, and then uh, you've added a fifth. So can you just detail what those levels are? Sure. So if you would start at the top, um, uh, the first level I call, like to call the impact, which is, as I said, like this high level company metric, mirroring success. Those can typically be found either coming straight from your product strategy, if it's a sort of like a good one, or these can come from your company level OKR sets, either the quarterly or the yearly level. Typically these key results are, have this lagging nature and mirror those high level company priorities. Um, another attribute of the impact is that it requires typically multiple teams, multiple features coming together in order for it to, to change, right? It doesn't just change because of one feature. Below that, you have the, the actor level. And I'm sure we can go a little bit deeper into what the actor means. But essentially, it's, uh, it's the level of outlining who has a problem that is relevant in the context of the goal that is preventing us from achieving this goal or contributing to this goal uh, and making sure that you list the segments that have these traits, these attributes, so to say. The, the third level, um, I like to call the, as the, the outcomes. Uh, and borrowing from Josh Seiden here, seeing an outcome as a change in human behavior that creates value or contributes to impact. It's about synthesizing those research insights, showing problems into necessary changes in behavior. And basically, these first three levels are more focused on the problem side of things, as you can probably tell. So it's a lot about this strategic framing, selecting the user segments, distilling research insights. And then get it, let's, it gets a bit easier for most product teams because then it's, it's time to start to talk about solutions and all those fun experiments. So the fourth level is uh, the called outputs, meaning we now talk about the specific features, projects, epics, whatever you want, however you want to slice these that you would want to pursue to drive one of the given outcomes you have prioritized, right? So, okay, this is how the behavior has to change. What feature has the highest chance of creating this change in behavior? And the fifth level, as added, is to give teams even more structure but for being aware that just because an output, a feature is a potential idea, doesn't mean you have to build it right away. But there are probably some more lightweight steps to increasing your confidence in a given idea. So I added a fifth experiment level where it's about structuring quantitative or qualitative experiments you could run to further validate if an idea really drives this outcome you set out to achieve. 
Okay, that all makes sense, and it makes even more sense when you read an article or see the diagram and, <laughs> and put it all together. And unfortunately, we have that link in the show notes. But <laughs> I have spent I don't know how long in workshops with stakeholders trying to explain the difference between an outcome and an impact. And it's just gone wrong. So <laughs> help me with this. This is the entire reason we brought you on, Tim. No, no pressure. Um, okay. <laughs> what is the difference between an impact and an outcome? How do you get people to understand that quickly? So the reason, so how I try to articulate that more quickly is the impact is more about the company perspective, so to say, and the outcome is more about the user perspective. That's the probably the, the first, the high-level differentiation that makes most sense to people. The second, I would say, attribute that differentiates these two elements is their how leading or lagging they are. So as I mentioned, the impact typically is fairly lagging, as in you can only measure it in hindsight. It requires multiple things to happen or to fall into place until it changes significantly, until you can detect a change. And that, that's where the big problem comes in when teams try to map individual features or even experiments to those large company lagging metrics, right? So for a few companies, it's the case that you can tie in a feature release to company revenue or maybe even share price, right, which would be even more lagging. And therefore, obviously, teams need more more guiding, like, okay, what kind of metric tells me if the stuff that I'm doing actually moves the needle in the right direction? And so that you don't have to wait for those annual shareholder reports to figure out whether you made an impact, you need something more tangible, and that's where the outcome comes in, right? Because typically, those these outcomes you have identified for research change at a larger pace. So once identified, these outcomes can also be used for your team-level key results, your team-level OKRs, to measure the success of your product as well. Because then once you build a feature and you want to determine not just the result of an experiment, but the ultimate success of a product, you want to look at the outcomes and how the outcomes have changed in particular. So, so with the outcomes, are those coming out of the research that you're doing? And are you making assumptions or hypotheses from your research in order to kind of have some sort of confidence that they're the outcomes that you should be focusing on in order to achieve the impact do you see what i mean it's like sure no no yeah it makes total sense i think uh, again i think it comes down to, to 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 two layers i think the first layer is making sure that you're only doing research on those segments that actually matter in the context of the of the impact so for example mm. let's say your your impact is focused on monetization which means you probably want to utilize you look at attributes like paid membership saturation churn rates trial so um let's say you're pursuing um an impact focused on monetization you probably want to talk to people who share attributes like a given um, paid membership saturation or a certain average revenue per customer or given churn rate or trial conversion rate, right? So these segments then become most important. And therefore, already your, your corridor of insights to consider has significantly more, has become more narrow, right? Because you don't consider all people's problems, so to say. And then obviously as the second layer, you want to make sure that you only list those outcomes that are based on actual patterns, right? So just because one or two people have articulated oh, it's hard to complete the checkout, doesn't necessarily mean that this is an outcome you should be prioritizing. Um, so I would say having those two levels of saying, okay, is like is the group of actors, is the actor relevant to the goal in terms of quantifiability? So if that's a word, it's probably not. Like how about quantifying them? 
um, how large the portion is, how large, how big the leverage is, if you would change something for that segment. And second, how, yeah, how prominent is it, right? We probably have heard many product teams tell, say you like, no, but customers tell us they need that. And once you like drill into that, like, okay, how many people have said that? It's like, yeah, I heard that from a salesperson over lunch that they heard it from a friend, right? So you want to avoid this, those anecdotal proxies at this point. Sprig, formerly UserLeap, is an all-in-one product research platform that lets you ask bite-sized questions to your customers within your product or existing user journeys. Companies like Dropbox, Square, Opendoor, Loom, and Shift all use Sprig's video interviews, concept tests, and micro-surveys to understand their customers at the pace of modern software development so they can build customer-centric products that deliver a sustainable competitive advantage. So if you're part of an agile product team that wants to obtain rich insights from users at the pace you ship products, then give Sprig a try for free by visiting sprig.com. Again, that's sprig, S-P-R-I-G dot com. I mean, if I can't prioritize the things that salesperson told me over lunch, what am I going to prioritize, Tim? (laughs) <laughs> okay, okay, let's don't answer that. Um, so one of the, the, the levels you've got is actor. And I think there might be uh, a subtle difference between a persona and an actor. And I'm not yeah. 100% sure what that is. So is yeah, there? Neither am I, but let's try, to un- <laughs> un- let's try to untangle it together. So here's what I think about it. Um, obviously, there are different ways of how a persona might be set up, right? We have those like super flashy, gut-feeling-based marketing personas, but let, let's put these aside for a bit. But what you typically, what I typically see is that a persona is still based on, let's say, static attributes that are like sort of stuck with this person, right? And they're, they're more humanized by giving them a name. And you might hear something like, Tim, 32, a bit too serious about coffee, listens to five podcasts per week, right? That doesn't change in the mindset of a persona. And that means that I, as a persona, am only considered if these broadly matched attributes seem to appeal to marketing or product. The the actor categorization, as I see it, is much more flexible and dynamic, right? Because it's, it's, mo- it's not based on ultimate attributes a person might be having, but on those quantifiable behaviors that are relevant in the context of the goal. So it's really just about the context and saying like, just because you like coffee doesn't make you something worth considering for our goal. As we look at, okay, so the goal might be, uh, might be, might be engagement or might be activation. So we want to look at things like sign-in rate, mobile usage, push notification click-through rate. And we look at these quantifiable attributes. And from there, we start to build our actor segments. And this is, again, can... It's very, very flexible, and I like to think of it as not as static as the typical persona categorization because it's primarily based on the context of the overarching goal. So is there a limit when we do impact mapping? How many actors we should concentrate on? Should we just pick one for each experiment, or is it looking at it from a couple of different perspectives? Uh, that's a really good point. So in general, I, I wouldn't set necessarily a limit to the number of actors you should map out in theory on this level, right? Because it's about basically documenting what you have learned. Um, that doesn't mean that you have to solve the problems of all the actors, because that's probably the second biggest trait of what 
to me separates this actor category, actor perspective from the persona is that it's also about by, by mapping them out, particularly by mapping them out horizontally on that level, acknowledging the relationships and the differences these um, actors can have. So, for example, originally in this book, uh, Goykovic also talked about on-stage and off-stage actors, which I think is a brilliant metaphor to explain that to people because it's about those on-stage people are probably your primary users, right? These are the people who are really like using your product, who, who you're engaging with on a regular basis. Those off-stage actors might not be as prominently visible to you, but they play a role in your quest to achieve the overarching goal. So one prime example for me was once when I was building a Jira integration, I was primarily talking to the users of the integration later on. But turned out the IT administrators of my customers were very relevant actors because I needed to consider their problems um, in order to get my solution to be adopted, which was one of the larger overarching goals. So those offstage actors are typically, as I said, not as not as top of mind for most product teams. But these are the things you you pick up when talking to customers, and they mention maybe it mentioned on the side, like, oh yeah, and then I need to talk to so and so or department X Y Z, and you're like, oh. That could be an interesting actor to consider because it might stand in my way of achieving the overarching goal. And then you can map them out. And then when revisiting your interview insights, you can still decide, okay, is this really a crucial role? Will their problems really prevent us from achieving the goal or do I just not pursue them anymore? Yeah, I think that's really interesting as well because those, um, I think you call them adjacent actors in the the blog post where you mentioned some of this. And um, quite often, you know, when you're trying to sell a product or, or you know, uh, use a, a, an online product, there might be other people in the background that right. have an impact on whether it's successful and it's delivering value and everything. So, yeah, identifying those and calling them out. And I suppose you can only really do that through user interviews. Right. Or like maybe maybe a couple of open-ended questions in a survey, right? But mm-hmm. all the probably really want the qualitative side of things. And then it will be up to you to dig into like, okay, is this actor existent? Right? Do they exist and are they relevant for my for my discovery or my my mission? So you we've got to the point where we have a very nice impact map that has impact actors, outcomes, some outputs, um or actually, yeah, how do we get to the outputs bit where we, <laughs> I don't think we've covered that bit yet. <laughs> no, that's true. But yeah, it's, a, I mean, it's, it's a, it, it's, uh, it's quick to cover, I guess. So it's like, once you're at this point, okay, now we've really, we've, we've proven outcomes. And then again, it's still, it's about asking this question, okay, what are these outcomes should we focus on first? Because it poses the biggest lever for the overarching goal due to being named by the largest cust- uh, actor segment or whatever. Um, you basically can, you want to engage in more like structured ideation, right? To so say like, okay, now we have this outcome. The, the beauty of using the impact map for this process is that you can bring people on board fairly quickly by giving them the right context. Like, okay, here's why we care about this challenge, about this outcome for this actor in the context of this larger business goal you all might have heard of from the last all hands meeting. Uh, so now let's you let's frame that as a how might we statement and start to generate some ideas we can can continue working with. Then you really want to go through the motion of like this you know structured ideation processes, a little bit of dot voting until you end up with I don't know 
five, six manageable outputs or feature ideas that come out of such a structured ideation session. And you then you want to place them on the output level of the map. And then you can really connect them again to the outcome. You can make the case for why you would want to pursue this feature in the larger context. And then obviously you have to have to make a choice uh, what kind of feature you want to work on first. So you're prioritizing at the outcome level and then ideating against each potential outcome to generate different outputs. And at at that point where you're ideating, do you tend to just like really focus the team on, right, this is the one outcome, the behavior change that we are trying to achieve with our users and or these actors, um, rather than kind of mixing it up and having a few different options? Right. So, so my experience is that depending on the setup you're having, but assuming you might want to use this ideation phase to also bring on, let's say, like more like of those supporting discovery collaborators, like marketing, sales or C-level to engage with them. I found it best to really focus a given ideation session only on one challenge and one outcome, so to say. So people don't get like don't have to switch context too much, right? And talk about different challenges. So I really want to focus on okay, as a starting point, we're going to focus on this outcome, and this is again, which also symbolizes the idea of the impact map being like a not a static artifact, but something you can continue to use over time. Because at this point in time, you might focus on this outcome at a couple of weeks in the future, where it's about like okay, what kind of features or outputs which we want to focus on next. You might want to revisit some of the other outcomes you mapped out, either from this same actor or different actors, and you want to continue utilizing it. One question about that, though, because it sounds like you're getting dangerously close, and maybe this is actually the intention, to solutionizing in these meetings. And yes. is that is that a good thing, or is there a way of, of guarding against that? I think at this point in time, it might be a good thing because after all, right, it's like solutions is what will drive those business goals and these outcomes. Um, I think if you really manage to have the discipline of going through the motions of clarifying the strategic goal, what segments are relevant, what are their problems in the form of outcomes, I think you're all set to finally start talking about solutions as long as it's clear to everybody that just because like an idea has been generated and has been mapped as an output doesn't mean that it ends up on your roadmap and is this promised feature that drops in the next 18 months, but more like this is the range of options we have to drive this outcome and let's make an educated decision about with which we're going to start. So what you're solutionizing, just to be clear, is not committing to building a feature. It's, it's You're committing to an experiment to validate if that's going to work, right? Yeah, that, that's a that's a really good um, differentiation, I think, to say like, yeah, it's not it's not a commitment. It's like a range of options and showcasing also like what kind of decision making criteria are you using to say like, okay, I start I start validating or running experiments for feature A versus feature B. And how does this fit in with your product roadmap? Do you see it replacing a roadmap, or um, does it work alongside it? I definitely would see it working along the side of it as like a complementary tool because I think depending on what kind of roadmap format you like to use, mm-hmm. but let's assume teams are using a more problem or theme oriented roadmap. Um, I think it could be nice because from, again, from the impact, you can probably derive the high level theme. As I mentioned, is it monetization, engagement, retention, churn, all these things. You can then be more explicit within a given roadmap item of saying, okay, this is the theme and this is the outcome this roadmap item is about. And maybe 
depending on how granular and uh, what your time horizon is you want to look at, maybe you can already list the feature or experiments you want to run to drive that outcome within your roadmap item. But obviously, the further you look into the future, the less granular, granular you want to be. Um, so in this, then those more high-level roadmap items in the future could be the starting point for your next impact map, right? So maybe... Uh, in, in, I don't know, in, in the next or later column of the theme-based roadmap, you have things like international, like ex, international expansion or M&A activities. And these could then be your starting point for another impact map on the impact level of trying to quantify that theme. So how often would you have the team revisit this, uh, the, the impact map, once you've kind of got it into your discovery or, or like product workflow, um, yeah. are you visiting it like once a month or does it depend on the cadence of like how you're working? Right. I think what you just said, like that it depends on the cadence you're working probably informs that the most. Let's say you're really in a very more like very intense discovery phase where you will learn new things by the day or by the week. I think it makes sense to use the impact map as like a lightweight way for stakeholder updates or discovery check-ins if you run some kind of meetings or to bring um, the product team up to speed during a review or backlog refinement. So using that as a lightweight way to frame the work in progress, essentially. Um, I think on a more, if you would look at it from a more like tactical, uh, sorry, strategic planning level, you might want to utilize it during some kind of like rolling quarterly or maybe even yearly perspectives. Um, and I think from a team perspective, if you are really in the midst of gathering new data and insights by the day or the week, use it for that to document insights and make decisions. And other than that, revisit it as soon as you want to shift focus, have to shift focus or want to or have to communicate higher level strategic priorities that are coming up. So for anyone getting started with impact mapping, someone who's inspired by this conversation, and I know you're out there. How couldn't you? <laughs> what mistakes do you see people make when they get started? What's the one piece of advice that you'd give to people to say, uh, here's how to, to start using it in a, well, I'd say an impactful way, but that's cheesy. Oh, that's, that's pretty good. <laughs> um so the, the biggest, let's say, challenge I see for teams doing that the first time is differentiating the outcome and the output, right? Because very often when I give teams the challenge of like, okay, articulate how you're going to have to change the behavior, they are listing features, right? And um, naturally, that's the output. And so that's the biggest thing teams should be very cautious about because like if you look at it from the if you try to visualize the map as like a top to bottom five level framework you go from the problem space at the top to the solution space at the bottom and particularly the outcome and the output level are like the edge of from going from the problem to the solution space and so it's it's easy to get mixed up here so being very cautious at this level and using good facilitation and guiding questions to making sure like, hey, are we still talking about an outcome or are we already talking about an output? And my favorite way of highlighting that to teams is using the how, how might we test, as I like to call it. So as I mentioned earlier, you should be able to, you should be able to rephrase an outcome as a how might we statement, essentially. And if that's still the case, if that makes sense, chances are higher that you're still talking about an outcome compared to talking about a solution. So one like an anti-example would be if you just frame like, how might we build a share button? That's That leaves some room for discussion for the actual execution, but doesn't really 
inspire ideation and coming up with new ideas. Whereas if you would rephrase it like, how might we enable account managers to share data with their clients faster, that opens up the room to actually come up with the solutions that you would consider for that. So saying, how might we release this in Q3 is a bad one. <laughs> you might have to be creative, though, to come up with a couple of tactics to achieve that. <laughs> Fair, but still not the it's idea. Not the question is like, who's, who's changing behavior is that? <laughs> Tim, it's been such a pleasure talking to you this evening. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So if everyone who's listening shares this podcast with three friends, then the outcome will be that we'll have more listeners. And the impact will be that more people build better products. I was thinking more along the lines that we'll just be slightly more famous, but yeah, you know, <laughs> building better products is good too. So please share this episode with three people. Do it now. Our hosts are me, Lily Smith, and me, Randy Silver. Emily Tate is our producer and Luke Smith is our editor. Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band POW, that's P-A-U. Thanks to Arna Kittler, who runs Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. Connect with your local product community via Product Tank, our regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide. If there's not one near you, you can consider starting one yourself. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash product tank. Product Tank is a global community of meetups driven by and for product people. We offer expert talks, group discussion, and a safe environment for product people to come together and share learnings and tips. Mm -hmm.